0: This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School.
1: This is Women at Work on Business Radio.
0: Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help and inspire more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and you're listening to us at our new time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time here on Thursday mornings. So you know that quote you can't be what you can't see. It's Marion Wright Edelman's brilliant phrase that spoke volumes, still does, about the importance of role models. As we discuss all the time here on Women at Work, we need heroes who look like us, not only to help us believe in ourselves, but to get the world to see that people who look like us can be and often are those heroes. Fortunately, we have a guest today, Diana Cap, who has become one of those heroes herself using the power of her pen to take on this very challenge. In the very same month, she tackled Forbes' 99% male list of the 100 most innovative leaders and gave us the antidote to it with her new book, Girls Who Run the World, 31 CEOs Who Mean Business. You may have seen Diana's work in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, San Francisco Chronicle, LO, the Oprah Magazine, Outside, ESPN.com, and Marie Claire. She writes about education and entrepreneurship, putting that MBA from Stanford to good use. We're going to bring her on, a sh- on the show in just a minute, but first, I wanted to point out, give us a call. Join the conversation. You can reach us at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And my question for you is this. What are books that have inspired you that we should give to our daughters this holiday season? Uh, We're certainly going to be talking about girls who who run the world. I think it's one of them. But what are the ones that moved you, inspired you? Give us a call, 1 844 Wharton, 844 942 7866, and tell us what we should gift them to help them be all they can be. And with that, let me say, Diana, welcome to Women at Work.
1: Hi, it's so great to be here. Thank you for having me
0: on. We're thrilled to have you on. I have so many things I want to talk about today, Diana. You And I want that list of books when people (laughs)
1: send them in to you.
0: Okay, so I'll tell you what. Callers, give us a ring, 844-942-7866, and we'll tweet them out as they come in. Um, So, Diana, before we dive into the role models you talk about, your own story, which I'm fascinated to hear, I've got to start with one thing, Forbes. Tell us what that list was all about, what you did, and what the outcome has been.
1: Okay, so it was kind of incredible to have spent two years working on a book that's meant to inspire girls to grow up and go for it in life and in business and, you know, rethink what's possible. And two weeks before the book is coming out, I'm driving to work one day and I hear the announcement on the radio that. Forbes has put out their 100 most innovative leaders list and it's a list with 99 men and one woman and um, I mean just my immediate shock at that the fact that you know this is such a modern problem it's still going on I'm thinking about how much I've you know been pounding my daughters that you know about my book topic and how excited I am about change and then you know to hear this it's I'm crestfallen just thinking of my 14 year old daughter seeing that headline and you know those kind of lists um, have really massive reverberations because those are the lists where um, board members are chosen and ideas for who speaks at conferences and Um, Mm -hmm. gets academic appointments, you know, even, you know, for visiting professorships. And, um, you know, they're really dangerous, I think, actually. And so I was frustrated and annoyed, and I quickly wrote an open letter to Forbes. And since I'd been in touch with all of these women CEOs for the book, um, I wrote them and asked them to sign on. And then they wrote their friends, and their friends wrote their friends. And um, had about 180 female CEOs sign on to my open letter. And, um, and with the CEO of 23 and me, I asked her to go on NPR and, you know, kind of represent the group. And she did that. And so it was, you know, it, it definitely, um, made some noise and, we got we, Each one of us on the list got a personal letter from um, Randall Lane and Moira Forbes, the editors over there, um, and I got a great email from Meg Whitman who said, you know, we've got to make this a zeitgeist moment. You can't just let something like this go by and not grab it and you know, try to use it for change. And I just completely agree with her.
0: Absolutely. So there's a lot to unpack in there. But first, I want to ask, what did the email from Forbes say?
1: It, I mean, it kind of makes this excuse that they use this methodology that ac- academics developed that was, you know, required that the companies have a particular um, market cap that I think was like a billion dollar market cap or 10 billion dollar market cap and so there really weren't even any women-led companies that were in their set um, so i mean you can say that's an excuse and they can hide behind it but the fact that you know, they wouldn't think about what kind of list that would produce, or once it did produce a list that had 99 men and one woman, that they wouldn't kind of rethink what does it mean to put that out into the world, mm-hmm. and can't we do better in terms of defining what innovation means? Um, so, you know, their their letter wasn't very impressive. It just <laughs> felt like a PR <laughs> cover up. It honest. also said, sens- and I reached out a bunch to try to like have a sit-down with Moira Forbes and have a real discussion about what we could do to make change, and, and she never responded.
0: Yeah, it's, um, It also sounds like it's ignoring the systemic bias that's baked into that system because um, there's a series of reasons why there aren't women CEOs with companies at that level. Um, so by not looking beyond that market cap, they're just reinforcing the bias that's in the system rather than changing it.
1: Right. That's for certain.
0: And uh, one of the things that, like you brought up three things that I think are super important. So a lot of things are important. But um, top three for me is, one, that these lists have tremendous impact. Um, I know that I run conferences all the time, and I look to those lists to see who's out there that I haven't been thinking of. So that those lists actually wind up begetting um Who's on the stages serving as role models? So it's the same group that just gets recycled.
1: And, there's, and it's and it's even worse because what the magazines do in response is they produce these women-only issues. Right. And so it's like the hundred most powerful women, but it's you know it's undermining to women that it isn't just the hundred most powerful CEOs and that they somehow have a methodology that can include women. Um, And so I I feel like it's really backhanded when they end up like the response to that is always the women-only issue.
0: Yes, and that it ghettoizes the women's work and at the same time um, equates a kind of establishment success with innovation, particularly for this list, which actually leaves out the diversity that's generating the innovation that's going to change the business landscape. And so it feels like it's... um, Hurt. It's damaging on multiple fronts. I also want to bring up something else, which is that this, for you, was particularly poignant. I know as somebody who swims in the sea all the time, you had spent the whole year writing this amazing book,
1: steeped right. in and a world of women CEOs. <laughs> but it was actually kind of great, too, because it was, I mean, it might be the best gift of all in terms of being an author with a book coming out and... You know, that happening happening a couple of weeks just made the book very relevant. And it was, you know, a reason to be invited on to a bunch of podcasts and radio segments and people being interested in writing about the book, because I think it reminded everyone that, you know, there's a reason that we need to create some role models for girls, because they're really not out there right now. It's not prominent to see women in business um, being represented for girls to see.
0: Absolutely. So, speaking of girls and your girls, um, as you were writing your book, did you involve them in the process? Did you get their reaction to the kind of um, amazing group of role models that you've assembled for your readers?
1: I absolutely involve my girls. So, I have two daughters. I, I also have a son, but I have a 14 year old daughter and a 17 year old daughter. My 14 year old daughter, who was 13 at the time, it was a, a lucky thing for me that it was um, June when I sold the book, and unfortunately for her, she's a, a figure skater, and she broke her ankle on the first day of summer do um, in a figure skating jump. And so she was kind of stuck um, not being able to do any of the fun summer activities, but I put her to work um she did a bunch of research for me for the book, like she would online um, research the different women that I was considering. And then I took her around to meet a number of the women that I met in person here in the Bay Area. And then she did a lot of editing of chapters, as did my older daughter, who's a really, really strong writer. And it was just great. You know, they were the ones who told me, like, Mom, you've got to get rid of all these exclamation points that you're using <laughs> to try to sound like – you know, hip and cool, because it just falls flat. And, you know, they kind of saved me from myself, to be honest.
0: It's so funny. I think there might be um, a special recipe here. We had a guest recently, Joan C. Williams, whose um, book, What Works for Women at Work, she wrote with her daughter, who brought to her that same kind of like saving grace of keeping her hip and readable for a young audience.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: I think we need more of (laughs) these partnerships. Trying
1: to write for young people and thinking that there's that it involves a lot of exclamation points is a really bad recipe.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, but I do want to check on something to see if it's just me. When I was reading the book, um, obviously it has a it looks great. The illustrations are fantastic, um, and my first thought was, I want to give this to my daughter and my thirteen year old self. But then I also kept going through it, and I found it inspiring. Is there something wrong with me that as an adult I like it, or is it okay that we're part of your audience too?
1: No, I've got to be honest. I wrote this book with teenagers in mind, and that was kind of like the conception of what I was trying to do. But since it's come out, I genuinely think, like, I didn't even need to use a children's publisher. Like I I almost wish I'd used an adult publisher because they would be kind of marketing it more as a book that's for anyone. And I'm marketing it as a book that's for anyone. Um, Because honestly, these are just great stories. These are incredible entrepreneurial, creative people. They're like the lessons that are baked into all these stories are things that we all can take a lot from. And I something I've been thinking a lot about is that I've been so focused on this being for the female audience, but who I honestly think also would love these stories is guys. And whether that's, you know, men or boys, um, they're just interesting people who are doing amazing cutting edge things. And so I don't know why I keep kind of, you know, putting on it this limitation that this is only something that girls would be excited about (laughs) you know there's certainly most girls you know listen and you know and women are interested in men who are doing amazing things and that's mostly who we hear about and there's never been anyone questioning that so I I need to stop, you know, limiting it to only women.
0: So maybe when it's republished, you can retitle it um, The 100 Most Innovative CEOs and put one man in there for good balance.
1: I think you're
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> um, for those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here on Sirius XM One Thirty Two, I'm your host, Laura Zarron. My guest today is Diana Cap. She's the author of Girls Who Rule the World. Um, girls third... who run the world. Oh, I'm sorry, Girls Who Run the World. Yes, that's an important change. They do
1: rule the world too, but run yes, the world. but it's, it's
0: girls who run stuff. the world. They're <laughs> CEOs running their own companies, and it's 31 CEOs who mean business. If you've got a question and you're listening to us live here Thursday morning at 9 a.m. We'd love to have your call. And also, I really want to know, what are your favorite most inspiring books that we should share with our kids this holiday season? So give us a call. Phones are open at one 844 Wharton That's 844-942-7866. Two on my list, in addition to Girls Who Run the World, is The Dangerous Book for Girls, and of course Little Women. Tell me, what are your favorites? one 844 Wharton That's 844-942-7866. So, Diana, before before we start diving into all the lessons that there are for us in this amazing book, I want to know a little bit about you because you're talking about how you marketed the book, how you found a publisher. It seems like as an innovator, it, as a writer, you need to be entrepreneurial yourself. How did you go from concept of the book to having one in my hands?
1: So I've been a journalist for about 20 years, mostly magazine articles and some newspaper, and I've written a lot about, I'm really drawn to this issue of women and work and the kinds of decisions that women have, you know, are facing as young mothers and, um, you know, how much ambition we're supposed to have and how we're supposed to balance our lives. Um, so that was already like a zone I was very much in but this topic I've had other topics that I've kind of chased down and done a you know a few months of research on and that haven't kind of gelled and this one like the moment I started thinking about it like a, a proposal kind of came flying out of me and onto the paper so It definitely was something i i was feeling i was it was genuine it was or i think as a writer like things have to be very organic to you Mm -hmm. in order for them to happen like they really have to bring together things that are deep in you um so anyway i spent a couple of months working on a proposal which involves um you know deciding who are some of the women you're going to have in the book and actually writing the chapters about them And um, thinking through, you know, what's going to be the the format. And this one, I wanted to put a bunch of sort of educational things in the back. So showing girls how to read financials and how to um, write a business plan or understand what a trademark is and how to give an elevator pitch. So um, those were the kinds of things that I had to put together. And I um, had an agent and I... The book sold the the day it went out. I had that's a couple of offers.
0: Well, it's something that's long overdue and beautifully um, framed and targeted. So it's amazing that that happened so quickly. Since then, one
1: thing that that I should tell you about that was really exciting for me is that everyone told me you can't sell a book with with Ill, an illustrator that you bring to the project, and I had gone on this platform that actually a friend of mine came up with that's called women who draw and she created it to give visibility to women illustrators and it's this beautiful format so you can just scan through and see like thousands of illustrations and the the different styles and you can search through many different ways and I found this woman Bijou Carmen who has since become incredibly famous doing work for Rolling Stone and Prada and winning all kinds of awards, and um, I hope I can get her again if I can do another <laughs> volume because at the time she wasn't quite so high profile, but I just <laughs> found her scanning through this this thing. But I think the illustrations really bring a lot to it. It makes it just really fun.
0: It, it not only makes it really fun, they are these really um, cool port- graphic portraits of each of the CEOs and founders. And so it makes them real to us, um, makes them human, and um, brings out something about each of their personalities and their stories that makes them special. So they're not just illustrations. I think they're really inspiring portraits. Um, So hats off to Bijou. She did a great job with this. Yeah,
1: she's pretty great.
0: Um, So I want to back up for a second. One of the things you said is that as you were writing, um, that there was a process. You had to take your ideas, kind of frame them out, um, think about what form they would take in a book so that you could write a proposal and that you were working on things that didn't gel. How much of that is a normal part of the writer's life?
1: It's a huge part. I always tell my husband, if you would look through my hard drive and you would see like the graveyard of ideas that never go anywhere, but things that I've spent time kind of chasing down, like it is a huge graveyard and it's almost (laughs) like I feel like if you walk through my hard drive it'd be like going through like the inner stitches of my brain like I just think about so many different things I chase down a million things that never come to anything which isn't entirely true because I also think all that sort of work you do at other times like it does come back around and it's the way you come to start to see like trends and patterns and things Mm -hmm. that you put together so it's never really wasted, um, but yeah, not every idea. I've had You know, quite a few ideas. I w- I've spent a long time thinking I wanted to write a book about this woman, Mary Lasker, who um, she is the woman who came up with this idea that we should have government funding for scientific research about disease. And she's the first person that coined that term, the war on cancer. And that was back in the 60s. And she, you know, relentlessly lobbied government to try to get NIH funding. And she was massive in all of that. And now we have these awards called the Lasker Awards um, that are in her honor. And anyway, I spent. You know, even a year in the Columbia University Library looking at boxes of her papers and trying to decide if that was a book – so anyway, I you know you do do a lot of work that doesn't go anywhere, but it's not for naught. I'd no. say no,
0: and so it makes me think of two parallels. So one is writing is a creative process, and in the design process, you can generate a hundred ideas, pick one, refine it, um, apply it a hundred more times, pick one, refine it. It's an it's a process, and it's not unlike I think. Um, athleticism and you know when I learned to run a marathon you know every day you do something you're working your muscles you're building yourself not everything is a race not everything gets you there it is a process of how you develop and think but I don't think it's unique to creative people there were a lot of stories about a very similar process in the book does that suggest that this is an important function for business or that business can be inherently
1: creative it's so important to think about the fact that every one of these stories in the book is all of the businesses come out of this wealth of experiences these women have and many attempts and failures and the way that they kind of improve upon things that they've thought of in the past or learn from the mistakes you know in every case i would say these businesses didn't just come out fully formed as what we see them today. They're this amalgamation of all these kind of, you know, forays into different endeavors that have taught them something, shaped the idea, made it turn a little bit left this way and a little bit right that way. Um, So, yeah, I think that that idea is so important to think about. Don't think about things that don't happen or don't go perfect as a failure. They're the building blocks to learning how to do anything and getting inspired to do things and, you know, figuring it out. That's what we do when we're entrepreneurs is figure things out. Absolutely.
0: And I want to dive in a little bit for the process of, um, not just how the generative process and that key difference that you said of when you felt like it started to gel, you had flow, you knew you were onto something. But I'm going to gather, while this book found a publisher the first day you were selling it, you haven't had one a 100% hit rate with everything you've ever tried to sell or get published, correct?
1: Right. There's people in my writing grotto, which is the San Francisco Writers Grotto, a group of 120 writers who pledge every year on New Year's Day to get 50 rejections. <laughs> and what they're doing is they're saying, I am pitching ambitiously enough that I'm going to try publications that are much harder than I think I can get into. And if you don't try, you'll never get them. So I do think that that's, that kind of mindset of sort of going going higher is going to involve a bunch of rejection, and you just have to – withstand that and building up that thicker skin is what a lot of these women in the book have taught me you have to do that's why they prevail because they have a thick skin how did you develop a thick skin my god i've had so much failure in my career (laughs) i've had i've done so many different things i mean i wasn't a girl who knew what she wanted to do so you know i was an english major in college i Worked in nonprofit in Washington D.C. Then I fly out to the Bay Area to California, thinking I'm going to, you know, find my way here. I end up working in a biotech company, which was nothing I would have ever dreamed I was going to do. I went to business school um, as a poet. They they have a special program at the Stanford Business School for people who come in with zero kind of mathematical orientation. Um, and we went in the summer to do that. Um, I've tried product design. I've worked in startups. Um, so there's just been, you know, so many different adventures I've been on, things that have not gone well. I've been laid off from jobs. Like you just, that's how you get your thick skin. am I got to say, like, I really look at my own life as this. There was the before this decision and the after this decision. And that decision was coming out to California by myself without a plan when I was about 24 years old and having to completely depend on myself to get a life together, find my way. And it developed in me the strongest sense of self. It was not a sense of self I'd ever had as a young person but it was only because it was so hard. And I just, I wish that for everyone growing up that they put themselves in that hard of a situation because I don't think there's any shortcut to proving to yourself that you can make it on your own and you can find your own way all by yourself. That's what you have to do, I think, in order to really feel a deep sense of self.
0: I love that you frame it as it's not something you're doing to prove it to anybody else. But you first have to believe that you can do that.
1: You do. You really do. And I think it's so particularly true for females. I just think, you know, you grow up and like most girls, I didn't have like a very strong sense of what was possible for me. I was as a young girl, I remember going to my elementary school career fair um, at Chevy Chase Elementary School, and there was like 50 things we could have chosen from. And I went to cake decorating and hairdressing.
0: <laughs> right, because that's and, what was offered.
1: No, I mean, there was plenty of other things offered that was like architecture and, you know, <laughs> computer science. But those weren't the things that I really thought of myself doing. Oh,
0: you couldn't see yourself there yet.
1: No, and I, you know, I grew up in a household where both of my parents worked. My mom was a teacher, but my dad was, you know, a prominent lawyer, and, you know, all the kind of accolades always came to him, and we always viewed him as kind of the real working person, whereas <laughs> my mom was sort of the, it was the second string, because she was a teacher, and she was more flexible, and she was home if we were, you know, sick or needed to pick up from school. Um, and so I think a lot of those ideas about you know women and work get formed at home. Absolutely, in
0: those early years. So you know what? In
1: those really young. A- yes.
0: Yeah, so accolades go to your mom for sure and not to mention for you and all the reasons why we'll talk about in our second half hour. I'm talking with Diana Cap. She is the author of Girls Who Run the World, 31 CEOs Who Mean Business. So I want to – one question about the book. Why 31? Conjures, you know, a certain number of flavors of ice cream from a certain ice cream store. Um, it,
1: no, it actually, which where I used to work, actually, that was my very first job, was a scooper at Baskin-Robbins <laughs> in my brown corduroys <laughs> and my little brown uniform. Anyway, the reason it's 31 is because I was planning on thirty. But I really, really wanted Soul Cycle to be part of the book, and they didn't come through until the very end. In fact, if you go online, you can still find a bunch of covers on different sites that just have 30. That, it, that where the cover <laughs> says 30. Um, but once we got um, Soul Cycle, it's a it's an amazing pair, Elizabeth and Julie Rice, and mm-hmm. I wanted the both of them in there. So my my editor said, actually, it's great when you have a weird number. And it <laughs> makes the book more memorable. So just go for it.
0: It's so funny. It's like the weird ask in Mrs. Maisel, but I won't put out any other spoilers. Um, so all of the CEOs that we that are in here, and we were talking about this in the first half hour, have this combination of, they have this creativity, this um, way that they've been innovative and come up with new ideas to solve persistent problems. But that there's also a different another part to them that enables them to go from the idea to actually bringing it to life and building a thriving business. Um, Did they all learn this in business school? Is that necessary for this?
1: There are people in the book that learned it in business school and that have all the pedigrees that you would expect. But I would say more people in the book, more of these women, they are so self-taught and it's something about today that makes it more possible than ever for people to become entrepreneurs because they go to the university of youtube they Mm. google things they figure things out because there are so many tools available the woman in my book um christina stemble who founded farm girl flowers she actually never even went to college she's an indiana farm girl And she tells me that she figured out how to care for her flowers, how to arrange bouquets, going to the University of YouTube. She takes (laughs) online Excel classes for $29.99 to understand how to do her books. Um, The the woman, Jane Chen, who founded this incredible company that is um, low-cost incubators, to help preemie babies in the developing world stay warm when there isn't power and electricity. So it's this substance inside a little almost snowsuit, you could picture it, that heats to body temperature and then holds that heat for eight hours. That is brilliant. And I asked her, how did you find that substance that, will, that works in that way at that exact temperature that is body temperature? And she said, I Googled. You're kidding. So me. I'm not kidding you. You know these. There's you know another woman that I have um, had on a panel, who um, her company is Blue Land, and they are doing something so cool. Sarah Paigiu, and she is taking all kinds of cleaning agents for the home, and she's providing you one plastic bottle. And then the cleaning agent comes in a tablet form and you just put it into water so that you're not using buying bottle after bottle in these huge plastic containers. And I asked her, how did you figure out how to turn these agents into a tablet form? And she said, I went on LinkedIn, I searched under chemist, and I wrote a 100 messages on inmail. And I just said, "Is there anything you can teach me? I'm a complete novice. I'm looking for chemical information." That's how she started. It's not. It's that's why I say these women aren't rocket scientists. They try things that are like very pedestrian and possible for any of us. I'll tell you a great story about um, Jen Hyman, the founder of Rent the Runway, and this is one of my favorite stories in the book. So she's in business school at Harvard. She um, goes to visit her sister over Thanksgiving and she sees that she's way overspending on um, like holiday cocktail dresses to go out and go to parties. And her sister says, you know, I, I never can wear them again because now it's Instagram day and you once it's shown up on Instagram it's kind of dead to you so yeah I keep buying these dresses (laughs) I'm getting myself in terrible credit card debt so she thinks up this idea that you know what if girls rented dresses what if women rented dresses and men um rented suits that they need or tuxedos so anyway she she decides the first step is to get in touch with the designer Diane von Furstenberg That if she could reach out to her, she could learn what she needs to know about the industry and maybe even get her to rent her the first set of dresses to give this a try. And I said – she tells people that the way that she finds Diane von Furstenberg is just by sitting at her computer and typing in 30 different permutations of – diane at dvf.com diane vf at oh com. almost like have a simple hacking of that? an email I, I system, system. I do that. yeah i do that i guess to try to figure out who editors are by you know looking at the masthead and seeing what the the format is and just trying three or four different things that's how she reaches diane she she one doesn't bounce and she gets an email right back from her and she tells her, you know, if you come to New York City on Friday, I'll spend an hour with you at the end of the day. So she and her friend Jenny, who she's kind of talked into doing this idea with her, they rent a car. They go out and buy Diane von Furstenberg dresses. They name the company while they're driving on the way from Boston <laughs> to New York. They're like, we're going to introduce ourselves as the CEOs of Rent the Runway. Um, but they, this is what happens, it's just the most incredible story, is they're, they're about 10 minutes outside of New York City when uh, Jen's cell phone rings and it is Diane's assistant on the phone. And she said, oh, I'm so sorry to tell you this. Something has come up, Diane cannot make this meeting happen. And I'm also really sorry to tell you, but she's not gonna be able to reschedule. This just isn't gonna be something she's gonna pursue. And what Jen does at that moment is she holds the phone by her ear and she says, what, what? I I don't hear you. The cell phone is breaking up. I'll be there in 10 minutes. She shows up at the meeting.
0: Oh, my God. That's a such quick thinking and
1: a little moxie. It's mega moxie. It defines moxie. like god i wish i could have thought to do that at some point in my life like i just love that more than anything i've got to say and she (laughs) she, she says that she asked herself what is the worst thing that could possibly happen and i'm always telling girls that i talk to about the book like to ask themselves that question when they are afraid of something or they want to take a big risk Because if you actually play out what's the worst thing that could possibly happen and you figure out that it's really not that bad, it helps you go forward. So, you know, in Jen's case, she was like, oh, I could get escorted out. I might, you know, drive the rest of the way and never get in. I might be really embarrassed. But none of those things are, you know, all that bad. And (laughs) in her case, she went and the meeting actually happened.
0: That's incredible. So for those of you who are just tuning in, this is Women at Work. I'm your host, Laura Zaro, and I'm talking with journalist Diana Cap about her new book, Girls Who Run the World, 31 CEOs Who Mean Business. If you've got a question, you want to join in the conversation, or your own story of breaking the rules to make success happen, we would love to hear from you. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So in this story, aside from the fact it is so delightful and it's so amazing to people peel the curtain back on Rent the Runway, which apparently it's not just me using it for formal events, but also women in Congress are now using Rent the Runway.
1: I love that story about women in Congress renting their lavender suits AOC from Rent the Runway. So smart.
0: Yeah, yeah, talk about people who have pressure to not wear the same thing all the time. Um, But there's also several key lessons in this or notions that I want to unpack a little bit. So one is that it sounds like In this case and in the others that you've mentioned, there was a problem that where it started wasn't with, I have a cool idea. It's that there's a problem that I want to solve. Am I seeing that right as a pattern that runs through these? Absolutely.
1: That's like the best question you have to ask yourself is what is a problem that really needs solving? Um, You could go through pretty much every story in the book and you'd figure out that, you know, Katrina Lake thought up Stitch Fix because she absolutely hated going online and trying to compare 150 pairs of jeans on different online sites. And she thought, God, wouldn't it be great if someone would just send me the jeans that would work for my body and they would know that because hundreds of other women with bodies like mine would have given them the data to know that, which is now possible. Um, So yeah, these The things in the book start with a problem. There's um, Jessica Matthews has this incredible um, uncharted power. It's a green power company that she figured out um, going to her aunt's wedding in Nigeria where the lights went out at the wedding and these terrible generators that like puff off all this terrible pollution had to come out. And apparently, like, the the power going out is just a constant in in the developing world. Um, And so she figured out this way to use the energy from motion to power the grid in the developing world. And she started with a soccer ball that, you know, she got the, the kicking motion to power a battery that then could charge cell phones. And then she put it into the wheels of suitcases, and so when they roll it creates power that can charge a cell phone and then now she's got it in strips on the road and if you just drive over it the motion of the car is allowing them to power street lights and things like that so yeah, it starts with a problem that you have personally, usually, and that's what drives this whole creative process of, you know, isn't there a better way? Yep. It, and it,
0: at its heart, um, it's to me what the key is to innovation versus creativity. It's that innovation is applied creativity to solve a problem.
1: Yes. and that, I, tell, I tell them in the book, I tell um, when I have suggestions in the back of... Um, how do you brainstorm a business idea? Is make a hassle list. Things that drive you crazy and you hate dealing with on a daily basis. <laughs> Whether that's like, I can't run the VCR in my house, or I can't, um, I hate walking the dog, I hate pick, pick, picking up the poop, you know, our recycling is overflowing. And then you could just start to think through those things and are those things you could do for someone else? Or can you, you know, for me, I hate that I'm always reusing. Um, I'm never reusing plastic bags. I I don't have a good way to wash them out and dry them out. So that's something I'm telling my son, you need to build me something so I can, I can hang my plastic bags and reuse them. Yes. I need that product.
0: Yes, because I'm jerry-rigging it at home and it's making a mess in my kitchen. So I'm <laughs> a client too. So it sounds like part of it is... There's, you need to see a problem that you want to solve. But then there's the, the, this interesting pattern that I'm hearing in figuring out how to solve the problem. And it's not something that has, that's like a light bulb moment that happens instantaneously. It seems like there's a commitment to a diligence, a um, persistence that all of these women had in knocking on a lot of doors and sending a lot of emails and reading a lot of things.
1: Yeah, another um, kind of great pivot story that, you know, involves learning and then having to sort of shift your idea to solve the problem more deeply is Miriam Nafisi, who founded this huge um, design company called Minted. And it, you know, at first glance, it looks like it's a stationary business. And that's where she began, selling stationary online, but what she figured out, first of all, she launches her company, and for the first 30 days, not a single person purchased a box of stationery. And that led her to think, God, I've got to solve this and do something more interesting. What would make this really different? And what she thought of was this kind of small side idea that had been brewing in her brain, which was what if I could incent designers from all over the world to enter a contest And we would choose the best independent designs. And those that got voted on by the community would get printed and produced. And those would be something that we sell on the site. And so it was the fact that the just plain old boxes of stationery didn't sell that led her to work late at night with a a coder who she hired, I kid you not, on (laughs) rentacoder.com. This was just like a little side project. She was the CEO during the day, and then at night she developed this tool that allowed these contests to happen. And now she's like reinvented design by sort of democratizing this whole process so that a designer anywhere in the world, even if they're basically a plumber during the day, but they're an incredible designer, they can enter and, and have their designs produced. And now she's producing uh, fabric and art that's for sale and cards and stationery, and it's you know a massive platform. She's now working with Target to design things and going to be working with a lot of other companies to produce private label products. But it really started with her having a problem that she wasn't selling anything and her idea wasn't original enough. And so kind of tweaking it to think of what would be a better take on this that hasn't been done. And then that becomes the big idea, is this, you know, a platform where designers can have their work chosen by the crowd.
0: So again, this is somebody um, getting the the critical skill set that she needs to get the business launched through things that are readily available online. Rent-a-Coder, kind of amazing, you know, up there with, you know, University of YouTube, huge. I love that we can frame that as a concept now for our listeners. Um, But also that she used data early on. She was measuring what was happening. And while it was heartbreaking to not have any sales, um, it was important information. And that she put that immediately to use and then essentially ran the equivalent of an innovation tournament.
1: Completely. But I think it's, we can't overlook the fact that she didn't just give up and kind of Mm deflate when she didn't sell anything for 30 days. Yes, that was very difficult. And she was very stressed out. And particularly because her early money came from friends and family. So she was just like, felt feeling terrible that maybe she had, you know, led them astray. But she she somehow found within herself this, like, well, deeper well of confidence that's like, I believe in what I'm doing. I'm going to stick with it. And I think that that is so key to all these businesses because it's really hard to get something started. I don't care if you're a man or a woman. It's, you know, Mm -hmm. entrepreneurship is just – it's full of difficulty and kind of rolling the the ball uphill and having it slip back a little bit. That's, that is that is the nature of the beast. It's just nobody has it easy. No one <laughs> no. has it go right the first time. It's always tweaking and improving and learning from the things that don't go well.
0: One of the other patterns that I saw um, is a discipline that was there. It was a focus. So at the same time that... Um, there's a big dream, there's a big need that that um, these entrepreneurs are trying to meet or a problem they're trying to solve. And it seems like an almost inexhaustible capacity to keep digging and learning until they find what they need at the same time there's been a real focus about what they bring to market and a restraint about how they develop the business before they expand is that a, is that a real pattern in here is there a principle behind it talk to me a little bit about it cuz it seemed to keep coming up for me
1: yeah i mean i think at the end of the day it's you know this isn't just some like throw paper you know, throw paint at the paper and you know you have to be thoughtful and disciplined and very hard working the kind of discipline that requires you to write a business plan and think through, you know, who is my consumer and where do I put my retail stores or what's the best channel for me to sell my products. It's, you know, they do a lot of research. The, um, the woman, uh, Emma McElroy, she founded Wild Fang, which is this really mm-hmm. great business in Portland that's making um, kind of tomboy clothes, the genderless clothes. And she says that she went to 180 homes and spent time in the closet with those women talking about their clothes, how they think about their clothes, what they wish they had in their closet, what they're wearing. That's how she figured out that there really was this desire to have more genderless clothes. She she had a hunch about that, and that was something that she herself wished that she had, but she had to first figure out – is my hunch right? Is this really what customers want? Or am I just thinking that myself and kind of, you know, colored by my own desires? So it isn't just – there is science to it. There mm-hmm. is discipline to going out and doing the 180 researches that are three hours in the closet each one. Um, it yeah. doesn't just happen. you know.
0: No, and that the companion piece to it was amassing the data through a quantity – of um, uh, getting a quantity of data that would inform her, but then at the same time being disciplined and focused about developing prototypes without spreading themselves too thin.
1: Yeah, or like the woman who, Diane Campbell, who founded the the candy store, it's this really charming, last of its kind, sort of corner business in San Francisco. And she says, you know, you have gotta work on a seriously detailed business plan and I don't say that so that you don't, like, dream big, but it's because that, that practice of thinking it through is really critical. Mm-hmm. You do need to think about why you're doing particular things or what is your cost structure going to be and what's, you know, realistic. Um, otherwise, you, you just won't, you won't make it out of the gates.
0: So a big part of this book, Diana, is that these are new role models for all of us. Who are the role models for the role models? Did you see any patterns there or find anything exciting?
1: I think that a lot of the role models in the book were their fathers and their mothers. And that's, in one case, it was um, this wonderful aunt who um, taught Stephanie Lampkin all about coding and got her interested in STEM and science at a young age when her own mother was, um, I don't even think, working. Mm-hmm. But in many cases, I'd say um, the fathers have a huge impact on these women. And it's something I don't think we think enough about with our daughters is how much um, kind of fathers being invested in what their girls are doing and believing that they can do big things really matters. One of my favorite anecdotes is from Sarah Blakely of Spanx, and she talks about how her Her father um, always really valued this idea that failing is a great thing and that we have to celebrate failure, and that's how we're going to be risk-takers. And so he had a practice. Every night at dinner he asked everyone in the family to tell them, like, what was your biggest failure today, and then he would high-five you, you know, pretty much every time, whatever it was. And just to give this message that it's okay and it's actually great when you try big things or put yourself out there. And of course, you're not going to, you know, things aren't going to go well. And that's how you become really creative and do big things. Um, So I also love the story of the father of um, Macy Peterson. Uh, She has a company called On Second Thought that allows you to send out a text, like a drunk text, and then take it back, Ooh. like you have a bit of time. And she had founded a magazine before she tried this, um, creating this app for taking back a text, and the magazine failed. It was a magazine directed to African-American millennials. And her father was allowed, figured out how to talk to her about the failure. And say it wasn't it's not you that's a failure. It was the magazine that failed. And here are some of the reasons why. But not internalizing that you yourself are a loser and a failure. Being able to make the separation between sometimes a project fails. It doesn't mean you are a failure. And so she was really it really meant a lot to Mm -hmm. her that her father like hammered that point as when she was in her young twenties. Um, and that helped to really build confidence.
0: It makes sense. And it almost seems like there's this kind of trio or um, a, a couplet of um, values that we get from these experience. That one is we've got to keep trying and be, be persistent. Have faith that you can find the solution. And to remember that if you haven't been rejected, if you haven't failed, you haven't tried enough. And that it's not you. It's the idea. And that you can find a solution if you keep trying Three fair messes, messages to take out of it?
1: Those are great messages. They really are. <laughs>
0: Diana, I can't thank you enough for joining us today and for writing this amazing book. For people who
1: want to find you, where should they go? They can find me at www.dianacap.com. That's K A P P as in Paul. Um, they can look at Girls Who Run the and I have lots of information about the book. The book is available in your indie bookstores. Ask them to order it if they don't have it. And also on Amazon, on barnesandnoble.com and at Target.com. Fantastic. And you can still get it in time for the holidays.
0: <laughs> Diana, yeah. thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for listening. If you have a question, write to us at Business Radio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us at xm. SXM Business and me at Laura's Arrow. Thank you to Patty Hall, to Dion Simpkins. I'm Laura's Arrow and you've been listening to Women at Work on Sirius XM 132.
1: All of the wild into the streets